Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. Welcome to our service here, Erev Shabbat service. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Land Ministries, and we are glad that you're joining us here at B'nai Shalom uh, for our Erev Shabbat service. Thank you for inviting us into your home and wherever you're at uh, for us to be a part of your Sabbath, and we're glad to see all of you and, ha- and glad to have you. A couple of quick announcements I want to share with our brethren, of course. Uh, Passover is coming up here very shortly. It begins our season of the appointed times. And in fact, the Nissan, we call this the head of months uh, because, you know, just like those uh, guys that are into football, you know, the season for football, you know, begins in the summer, extends through into the winter. You know, if you're a football fan, basketball season, of course, begins in the fall and extends through the springtime. Well, we Messianics, our season begins now for the appointed times of the Lord, and uh, Passover is coming up. But I also want to remind you, there's other feasts of the Lord. The Feast of Weeks will be coming up in June, and we, Line of Line Ministries, will be hosting a gathering for all the brethren that are able to come to join us here in Norman. And also the Feast of Tabernacles that will be in the fall this year's uh, Moedim for Tabernacles. Our theme this year is Zealous Over Zion. All of these are now open for registration, and if you want to come and be a part of them, plan now uh, to be keeping the appointed times of the Lord this year and join with us in fellowship. We'd love to have you to be a part of it. So go to each, our websites, and you can see the registration for all of those events. Um, the uh, Let's see. We've got... Uh, I'm not going to make that announcement. I made that announcement before. Let me make this announcement. By the way, local guys, next Sunday, April 9th, men's prayer breakfast. Come and join us. Join in with all the other men as we pray for uh, our brethren wherever they're at in the Messianic movement. Pray for the families that are here locally and to lift up our petitions uh, from the heads of families uh, before the Lord. We'd love to have you join us for that. Again, those who are here at the studios here at Lion Land Ministries, if you're able to come, come and join us, and we'd be glad to have you. All right, I think that's our announcements uh, that we have, and so let's uh, get our Sabbath underway, and we'll begin with Kiddush. Please join our family as we usher in the Sabbath. King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments, and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Let's see the blessing over the cup. Amen. 
are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Through the blessing of the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai Eloheinu melech haolam. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Now, husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, and I thank you so much for my wife, and just the continual blessing that she is to me, Father. Um, she always considers me, Father, and I praise you for it, for giving me such a humble woman, Father. I, I can't thank you enough. Father, I just I thank you so much for her presence in our home, just the spirit that she brings um, to our daughter, Father, and just the joy that she brings to me as well. And she reaches out to her neighbors, Father, and reaches out to her family. Um, thank you, Father, that she provides us with good food and, and just a clean house, Father. But even more so, Father, she loves your word and she loves you, Father. Seeing this just fills my heart with so much joy, Father, and, and just knowing that I have a gift given from you, Father. I know that you're watching over me, Father. You are so good. We praise you for all these things. In Yeshua's name, amen. All right. Let's bless our sons. May 
Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Mich Mocha. 
All together, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Israel et hashabbat, lasot et hashabbat ladortam berit olam. B'nei avayom b'nei Israel od hit leolam, kishashet yamim asadonai et hashamayim v'et haoretz avayom hashvi'i shavat v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. We all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol meodecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechime zavcha, hayom alevavcha. Ve'shinantam lavanecha, v'tepardabam p'shivtecha, v'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derechu shakpika, uv'kumika. Ukeshatam la oto yadecha, v'heyu la totvo b'inenecha, uchetavtama mazuzo p'techa, uv'isharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. 
You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Father, we just thank you for this Shabbat. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you, to worship you, to praise your name, for you are holy, Father. We invite you to come and join us in our midst, Father, as we lift your name high.
Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was and is and is to come. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, to chapter 6, holding your finger there uh, at verse 8, where our Torah portion for this week will begin. As you are opening the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher bakabanu mikol haamim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai Nonten ha Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Zav, which, in, which is the Hebrew word for the uh, English word command. And that begins here in our portion, Leviticus chapter 6, uh, beginning at verse 9. Uh, for those of you that might be using a Jewish Bible, um, this is one of the instances in which the Jewish Bible and the English Bible has a little bit of a uh, disconnect a little bit as far as the starting of the chapters. Um, this begins uh, chapter 6 in the Jewish Bible. So in the Jewish Bible, it'd be chapter 6 at verse 1. In our English Bible, it's chapter 6 at verse 8. Our Torah portion extends all the way through chap the end of chapter 6, through chapter 7, and also chapter 8. This is always a continuation of some of the same stories and same things that are, uh, that are going on that we've been talking about in previous portions. This is where we talk about the law of the burnt offering. We talked last week about the instructions to the people for what the different offerings that were made in the altar service. In this portion here, we're actually addressing directly the priests, the sons of Aaron, and what they, some of the procedures they are supposed to do in the process of these various offerings. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering. The trespass offering and the peace offering. Um, those more detailed information is given here in our Torah portion. I do want to mention also uh, Leviticus chapter 8 that's included in our portion is another time in which there seems to be a, an extreme redundancy within the scripture. In Leviticus chapter 8, this is where we have Aaron and his sons consecrated and they go through the seven-day process of becoming consecrated and becoming the priests of the altar service. We've seen the same pattern before. I mentioned a few weeks ago about how um, the instruction for the creation of the tabernacle is given at one point in time and then in excruciating detail, the details of when it is actually created is repeated for us in the scripture. And I mentioned then that there's no idle word in the scripture that God, we serve a God of order, not a God of chaos, and he has a plan. Not only does he have a plan, but he will execute the plan. In Leviticus chapter 8, we have almost verbatim a repeat of Exodus chapter 29, in which we had all of the um, instructions for how Aaron and his sons were to be anointed and the sacrifices needed to consecrate them to become the priests of the altar service. And we have that detail given to us here in Leviticus chapter 8. 
Um, just a reminder, as always, there is no idle word in the scripture. We're in the middle of the book of Leviticus, where many people, especially of a Christian faith, are always kind of like, oh, that's that's old. That's all done away with. But we however, I submit to you. That there is no idle word in the scripture, that all of this has a plan and a purpose and is applicable to us today, especially as believers in Yeshua the Messiah and all of his plan, his purpose and his salvation for us is all made possible because of the words of the Lord and the commands of God to the priesthood and for this altar service. That it's through that process that we have an acceptable sacrifice and our salvation through Messiah Yeshua. So going back now to the beginning of our Torah portion, here in Leviticus chapter 6, we have this very interesting um, change of, of uh, tone, if you will, of the Lord speaking to Moses, where he says in uh, verse 9, he says, Command Aaron and his sons, saying... Many times in the scripture we'll see that God speaks to Moses, and then he tells Moses to speak to the sons of Aaron. Speak to to the children of Israel. Here we have a very direct command, more of a forceful speech. And what's going to happen after this is that we're going to talk about the tamid offering, the lamb, the burnt offering that was given in the morning and the evening as a continual offering before the Lord is the command that's going to take place after um, this command that is being given. Also, the law of the grain offering is given to where that there was supposed to be a grain offering on the altar every single day in the morning and in the evening. In Leviticus chapter, in verse 24 of chapter 6, it then goes back and says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons. So we have this very different tone of speech here at the beginning of chapter 6. Why is this so important? Well, I believe, and what I'm hoping to bring out, is the importance of this daily offering. The importance of this offering, this burnt offering that is put on the altar in the, on the morning and in the evening and how important this is to our faith and to even us individually in our worship of the Lord. I'm going to go ahead and read here, beginning at Leviticus uh, 6 at verse 8. Let me go ahead and read this first passage from our Torah portion here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers. He shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering, uh, which is the fire, which the fire has consumed on the altar. And he shall put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. And it shall not be put out, and the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. This is a perpetual offering. At any given moment in time, at any point in the day, there is to be a fire and an offering being made on this altar. This has never been mentioned before. In all the previous commandments, talking about the bronze, uh, the bronze altar, talk, we've had the instructions about there being a morning and an evening lamb of a burnt offering. Never have we had such a specific, such a direct command that this is to be a perpetual offering before the Lord. 
This also has one of the most interesting and curious verses or um, the way that the words are laid out in the Hebrew is one of the most interesting places of Scripture that I've ever found personally in my own Torah study. When I went back and I said, this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth. That's kind of a loose translation of what the translators have tried to explain what actually is being described here. If I, if I could, let me kind of say in the English what is being said literally in the Hebrew language. This is what it literally says. This is the law of the burnt offering. He is to be a burnt offering because it is burned on the altar. It's kind of like this strange sort of redundancy. And what's all, we have to look more into the Hebrew to understand what's really being commanded here. The burnt offering in the Hebrew is called the olah, the olah offering, or the, the um, korban olah, the offering that is lifted up. That's what that Hebrew word means. So all of these times that we see, he see this burnt offering, it is something that is to be lifted up, exalted, raised up before the Lord. When I also gave that literal translation, it can literally mean that this is the law of the burnt offering. He shall be offered. He, not it. He is the way it can be translated literally from the Hebrew scripture. He shall be lifted up upon the altar. Several different th uh, reasons why this translation and, and Judaism has an opinion on this. But I also believe that this has great messianic ramifications as well. Judaism says that what this was was when somebody made this offering and uh, made an offering of a burnt offering that they themselves were being offered on the altar. We've talked about this before, about how the lamb or whatever was being offered was a substitution for the person. But when somebody truly was to make their offering before the Lord, they were to look in their own hearts and in their own process of keeping this commandment and worshiping the Lord. They were to look at themselves as if they were the ones being offered. That they were making themselves as an offering before the, the Lord. That they were lifting themselves up to be used by the Lord, if you will. That's one, that's one opinion on why this um, can literally be translated that he, as in a person, shall be upon the altar. I also believe that this is a great, there is another messianic prophecy hidden within this passage of scripture. That we have he is lifted up on the altar. For those that have done the study and looked at how Yeshua's sacrifice took place, that he was taken to the high priest, that he was then deemed to be worthy to be sacrificed. He was taken to a place that we believe to be the Mount of Olives and that he was lifted up and that the line of sight that from the temple across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, that we believe that it was in direct line of sight with the temple and that God himself sitting on his throne in the temple would have looked out across the altar, across the Kidron Valley, across to uh, the Mount of Olives, where this acceptable sacrifice, the Passover lamb, Yeshua the Messiah, was lifted up and actually he would have been seen by God to be lifted up on the altar, above the altar, immediately outside the temple. There's a line of sight in which this sacrifice would have been made and that the altar, that God would have seen the sacrifice in the same way he would have seen every other burnt offering sacrifice to be exalted above the altar. 
There is a connection here. Also, the, this detail here in our passage about the priest taking somebody, taking the ashes and taking it outside of the camp to a clean place. That this is also another parallel and a connection to where Yeshua was taken after he was in the temple and taken to where the crucifixion was, was considered to be outside of the camp and was called sometimes that place on the Mount of Olives was considered to be the clean place. There is a connection to the sacrifice of Yeshua and this particular commandment of the burnt offering. This is also another one of the interesting places here where in my English scripture where it translates it as hearth, which actually the literal uh, Hebrew word actually means burning. It's a Hebrew word called mokedah. And that this is one of the places in which there's the jots and tittles of Moses to where the mem of that word, mokedah, the first letter of that word, is made small, is diminished, is, is less than what it is. There's a couple of reasons why um, we think that that might, have, uh, that, that might be. One rabbi suggested that the mem was written small to make sure that it was a part of the word mokedah and not a part of the word that preceded it which would have been a preposition al mokedah that he said that if the word is shifted and switched that if it's alm okedah that that would have been or that would have had a different meaning of something to be diminished or something to be concealed or hidden which that's not what the burnt offering is supposed to be it's supposed to be lifted up and seen as a worship of the Lord so that we make sure that we write the scripture in a certain way to make sure the scribes made no mistake and changed and shifted a meaning of what's going on here. Another main reason why we think that mem is decreased is that the mem represents sometimes the innermost part of somebody, that it's representative of a womb in a woman, or that it's representative of one's soul, that their soul is to be is is connected to this letter mem, and that when somebody made an offering to the Lord, that they were to be diminished, that they should back off they they should um, uh, humble their soul when making an offering before the Lord. That was the purpose of this offering is to be that it was solely for the Lord. And this ties back to also where somebody, if they're offering themselves as the burnt offering, as that sacrifice, that you have to have the humility and the humbling of one's soul to be offered in that way. So how does this connect to us? How does this really mean to us in our personal walk, in our personal life? We don't have a temple. We don't have an altar service. We don't have people giving burnt offerings um, you know, anymore in the current state of the way the world is now. So what does this mean to us? Well, I've been saying for many times for the past couple of weeks about how God created this tabernacle, this altar, all of these things and all of this process so that we can establish these things in our hearts, in our own personal lives, in our own personal temples, if you will. That the tabernacle is a, is a picture of our own heart and that inside your heart is the Ark of the Covenant, is an altar, is a golden altar. That the, all of these things are to be built in a way so it's personally a part of your own spiritual life and your own spiritual worship. So this altar that is supposed to have a fire on it at all times, that it has to have an offering on it at all times... This is for us to make sure that we always are worshiping the Lord in everything that we do. That whenever anything is to take place, whenever the, whatever the day is, whatever time of day that it is, that there is a fire on that altar, a fire on the altar of your heart, worshiping the Lord at all times. That is what we should focus on. Now, did this always take place? Was there always a fire? Did the fire ever go out? 
Well, there's stories, and we believe that at times the priests may have failed to complete a duty and may have let the fire go out at times. And so, is it always perfect? No. But we are to pattern, and if we're to keep this command that God has called us to do, then this fire has to be lit and has to be on that altar morning and in the evening. The rabbis say that the evening lamb, the way this was supposed to work, is that the burnt offering went on in the evening, and it was to burn all night long. If you remember what the burnt offering is also supposed to represent, it's supposed to represent atonement. It's supposed to be a covering for a, a sin that we're unaware of, that nobody is aware of, but it's to make a co- covering and an atonement. And so that at any point in time, even in the evening, the rabbis say in the evening, that's when sin happens on a more regular basis in the evening. And we could relate to this, that when you, at night, in the evening, that's when shenanigans go on, that's when most crimes are taking place, all of those sort of things, that in the evening, they recognize that in the evening is when sin, and in the darkness, that's when sin tends to manifest maybe more so than usual. That this evening lamb that was supposed to be burning perpetually through the evening was to make atonement for that kind of sin, for those sins, that this is all is a covering for Israel, for the people at all times before the Lord. That's what the reason for the burnt offering was. And this is, again, why it was a perpetual offering on a regular basis so that we, Israel, the people, would always have the atonement needed and the covering of our sins. Amen. Our passage continues talking about, like I said, about some giving some more details about um, the various offerings. One thing I want to bring out is that uh, for the law of the sin offering and also the law of the trespass offering um, at the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, one thing of note that I really want to point out is that, again, like I said, um, the, the tone changes to where he goes back to speak to Aaron and his sons. I believe this is more, this goes back also to that the sin offerings that were given on the altar, these are not the offerings that God wanted on his altar. He doesn't want to continually having to be receiving sin offerings because somebody made a mistake and then somebody's constantly bringing a bull or a goat or a lamb because they keep sinning over and over and over again. Those are not the offerings that God desires. God desi- desires the voluntary free will offerings of someone from their own heart to have the heart and the loving kindness to give to the Lord, to worship him. He wants that kind of relationship, not one where we're constantly making rest. So this, when we start talking about sin offerings and trespass offerings, I dare say that these are not the desirable offerings to the Lord. These are not what he wants. He's to speak to them. This is what we have to do. But with the things that he does want, that voluntary burnt offering and that true worship before the Lord, that's when he says, command the sons of Israel, this is what I want and this is what I prefer. Something else about the sin and the trespass offerings is it says they were sacrificed at the same place as the burnt offering in the tabernacle when an offering was brought there was a place in the tabernacle where the sacrifice took place of the burnt offering he also did the exact same place is used for the sin offering and the trespass offering very interesting note that i found out about that is that people believe that the reason for that was so that when somebody was bringing an offering and there was maybe a line going out the door of the tabernacle for those who were bringing an offering because an individual would bring an offering that it would be for all the onlookers, for all the people looking around, that they would not know if it was a burnt offering 
a sin offering or a trespass offering. That one would not, it, what it does is it causes people to not call attention to one bringing a sin offering. Because they didn't know, an onlooker might not know, if they were then bringing a burnt offering, which was a voluntary offering. This was a reason that many believe, and I agree with this. This was to not bring attention to anyone's sin. That would also stave off embarrassment for someone who's always going. If there was a specific place for where the sin offerings take place, then you knew everyone in that line, everyone slaying an animal in that corner of the tabernacle, there's a bunch of people, there's a bunch of sinners standing over there. There they are making their offerings, and they're the sinners, and everybody doing the peace offerings and the burnt offerings. You know, the, the good people over here, the bad people over there. Not the case. We want, do not want to call attention. We do not want to bring attention to one's sin. We want to be able to do it humbly, without embarrassment, and without, with, with a level of confidentiality before us and the Lord. That's what this offering is taking place. So because all of these sacrifices all took place in the same place of the tabernacle, it was to ensure that we did not call attention to one's sins, which is a wonderful blessing, of course, whenever it can, comes time for confession, when it comes time to make restitution. We want to do it privately. We, it does need to be done, but we don't need to call attention to the negative aspects of our life, to the mistakes that we've made. Instead, we want to call attention to our, the fact that we're keeping the commandments and that we're worshiping the Lord in the way that he has called. Amen. Our portion continues on talking about the law of the peace offerings. I mentioned before that the peace offerings were the wonderful offering that was given where the person making the offering could partake of the meat that was that came off of the altar. And we have more details here about which part of the animal was able to go to the priests, which part was burned on the altar and which part could be received by the person giving the offering. The peace offerings are a wonderful thing. That's the thing that if we ever have a temple again, if we ever have an altar service, if we ever can... Um, make restitution and have the atonement for our sins and that we have a sacrifice that we can go before the Lord, that we are clean, that we have not defiled ourselves, made ourselves unclean. Maybe we've given sin offerings before, but then the opportunity for one person to then come and bring a peace offering, that will be a joyous day when we have that opportunity, when one could bring a peace offering before the Lord, a thanksgiving offering, and that was what it would mean to actually dwell with God, enter into his house, and share a covenantal meal with God. That would be a joyous day when we have that opportunity. So praying and hoping one day that that would be the case. Here we have also in our passage, here at uh, chapter 7, verse 22, begins the talking of and the reiteration. This has been mentioned several times in Scripture, all the way back to Noah, and it will be mentioned several times more as well. The prohibition from eating the blood of an animal. It's reiterated here during any of the part of these sacrifices when we're talking about what part could be consumed and what part was to be burned. And there's a reiteration here of the blood. Let me read here at verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, you shall not eat any fat of ox or sheep or goat and the fat of the animal that dies naturally and the fat that which is torn from wild beasts may be used in any other way, but you shall by no means eat it. For whatever eats the fat of the animal of which men offer as an offering made by fire to the Lord, and a person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall not eat any blood of any in any of your dwellings, whether of bird or beast. Whoever eats blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. So we have the prohibition of fat and blood. 
One of the things that is the easy way, the easy answer for any of these questions, why would those things not be allowed, is that the easy answer is those things belong to God. That is what God has called for him that those belong to, he does not belong to us, does not belong to anybody else, not the priests, not set aside, that those things belong to God. Always interesting the fact that when you read the, the fat of an animal, that even if it's found dead, torn by a wild beast, that that could be used for some other purpose. The fat of an animal could be used for, for fuel, for a fire, or various other things, I imagine. It, what's interesting is that this sets a precedent, and what some people say is that even if something is unclean, it can be used for another purpose. In fact, this sets a precedent for God to be able to use a person for good, even if they are unclean, even if they've been defiled. This is as show, goes a connection to the w Gentiles, where, between Jew and Gentile, and there was a much debate, especially in the New Testament, about should we work with Gentiles? Is it okay for a Gentile to come into the faith? But we have a precedent in Scripture when something that is ritually unclean, not meant to be eaten, but still is allowed to be used for good and used for a purpose. That precedent can be drawn out from this particular commandment about the fat of an animal, not to be eaten, but can be used even if it's found and is ritually unclean. But then we have the, th the commandment also about the blood. We've heard this several times before. It goes back to Genesis 9 when Mo, uh, God was making covenant with Noah and that he, when the sacrifice was made, that it was not that they were to abstain from blood, that you're not to eat the blood because the blood is the life of the animal. This is reiterated also in, in Deuteronomy 12 where it says the blood shall not be eaten because the blood is the life of the animal. That word for life, whenever you see that in Scripture, not every time, but in those particular instances, those, the Hebrew word there is nefesh. Now, some of you might recognize that word, but a nefesh is also mostly and usually translated in the scripture as soul. That the soul of a person resides in the blood. The blood is the soul of the person. Clearly stated in scripture that what that that red plasma fluid that's flowing in your body that goes into your heart. Remember, we've been talking about the heart recently, about the tabernacle and it being your heart. And what does it, what does the heart do? The heart pumps blood. What what's your blood? It goes through. It fuels every bit of all the rest of your life. It carries oxygen. It carries the 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 living breath of God, the very oxygen that we breathe. The blood carries it, and the heart pumps it throughout every part of your body. That without the pumping of blood in your body. You're dead. You have no life. That that is the life of a person. This has always been an encouragement to me that when it comes to the anatomy of one person, of a, of a believer, we're talking about the anatomy of, of each believer. We're talking about the heart. We're talking about the worship of the Lord. How do we do this with our body? With our, how do we be a vessel to worship the Lord? That's what we're constantly talking about here when we're going through these commandments here. So we have a body. We have a spirit, we have a soul. And the soul, it says in scripture, is the blood. The life that's inside of you, that that is where your soul resides. That it resides in your heart. Now that soul, which I believe, is what belongs to God. So if the, if the blood belongs to God, and the blood is our soul, our soul, our life, is devoted to Him. Belongs to Him. 
That's something we need to remember. We need to remember that the life that we have flowing through our veins that gives us, that allows us to live and operate and do everything that we do. We don't see our blood on a regular basis. We're not reminded every single day that there's blood flowing through our veins and if it wasn't there, we'd be dead. We don't think about that every single day. And we don't even think about when we breathe, when we... Every breath of, of life that we take that then goes into the blood and fuels us and gives us the, the life that we have to do the work of the Lord or to, that God has allowed us to live and enjoy life. We don't think about those things. But when we start talking about the scripture, when we start getting into spiritual things and we start looking inward at ourselves, at who we are, at our soul, that's supposed to be humbled before the Lord, remember? That when we offer ourselves up to God, that we're to humble our soul because it belongs to God. It belongs to Him. That is what it is to be a sacrifice to God. To be a living sacrifice. If we are to worship Him in the same in, in how He has prescribed us to be worshipped, that we have to remember that we are humbled and that we are giving ourselves as an offering and we're doing it constantly, just as the fire constantly burned on the altar and just as the blood of every sacrifice belonged to God, our blood and our life belongs to God. Let us remember that. Let us remember and then let us choose to serve Him. Let us choose life and not death. Let us choose blessing and not curse. And let us follow the command of God. When He commands us to act, when He commands us to worship Him, let us follow that command and let us remember our role, our purpose in the God's plan, in God's commandments, and how to be a sacrifice to God and how to be a vessel fit for His use. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings you give to us, for your teaching, your instruction. Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us some of this detail, Lord, of how we are to make ourselves fit and proper before you. How we are to not defile ourselves, Lord. And as we go through the book of Leviticus, Lord, we will learn more and more about how to remain clean before you. So that when we remain clean, Father, then we can be an acceptable sacrifice, a living sacrifice before you. And that you can then use us mightily, Lord. And I pray that when we offer ourselves up, that we would remember to do it constantly. And be vigilant in everything that we do. Whether it be in the day or whether it be in the evening, may our hearts and our minds and our thoughts be on you and you alone. And Father, I pray that you... Every time that we would sacrifice of our time, of our effort to worship you, Lord, I pray that it would be a sweet savor in your nostrils, Lord, and that you would look down with kindness and with happiness, Lord, upon all the works that we do. And Father, I pray that you would just continue to use us, guide us with your Holy Spirit. And Father, we submit our souls to you, Lord. We know that they belong to you. And so, Father, we thank you for the time that we have here, that we have the time to hear your words of instruction to worship your name, Father. And we thank you, Lord, for all the instructions of the altar service. And I pray that you would make all of these words new and refreshing to us and that you would continue to teach us, even with the words of old. Some say they are done away with, Father, but I pray that they would speak into our lives, speak into our hearts, and would encourage us in our most holy faith and in our constant walk with you. We love you. We bless you. We thank you for this time. And we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chai olam natah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai Nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth 
and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. Thank you, Ephraim, for your teaching. If you would now turn in your Bibles to the prophet Jeremiah, to chapter 7. Our Haftor portion uh, for this week is going to begin at verse 21. <clears throat> and as Ephraim was sharing with us, uh, you know, the, the portion that he taught is almost a repeat of the opening portion we had in Leviticus. It's again talking about these sacrifices. Um, whereas it was explaining the law of it, now it's giving instruction to the priest exactly how to do it. And there's a little twist in the understanding of that as to what we're looking at that ties into our Haftor portion. And you're going to see this almost immediately as I begin to read to you from Jeremiah chapter 7. So if you're there and ready to follow along, let me read a little bit to you what the prophet says here and how it ties into the Torah portion that we just uh, reviewed. Uh, chapter 7, verse 21 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in all the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. Hold on. Wait a minute. Obviously, Jeremiah is presenting a, a striking contrast. And he's trying to get us to reflect on something from the past to understand what is the lesson of the day. And the lesson of the day is God is looking for a much closer relationship with us than we have been doing with him. He is looking to stimulate us uh, to draw near to the Lord when apparently we haven't been. Now, the proposition he puts here back then where he says, I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. Let me go ahead and just pose a couple of quick questions. When Moses came to Pharaoh, did he not say to Pharaoh that the reason why he should let the people go is because we were supposed to get out of Egypt, go out in the wilderness, and wasn't it so we were supposed to offer sacrifices and worship the Lord? Did he not say that the, to Pharaoh that the purpose of us coming out of Egypt was so that we could worship the Lord with burnt offerings? That's question number one. Question number two, did we not just read the Torah portion the instruction of Moses that gives us all this detail and all this instruction on how to bring burnt offerings and bring sacrifices. You know, the different kinds of sacrifices from uh, burnt, whole burnt offerings and, and thanksgiving offerings all the way to sin offerings and guilt offerings. Did he not, in fact, give us this instruction through Moses that this is how we will worship the Lord? So what in the world is Jeremiah doing here? Because at first blush, Jeremiah, if I'm standing there listening to Jeremiah, and he says, 
I did not speak to your fathers or command them the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. Wait a minute, Jeremiah. It seems to me that God did do that. What, what are you saying? What, what are you posing? What statement are you making? What is the truth of that statement that we're going to set up the basis for you to now give instruction? You know, and it's, it's like a, it's a proposition. I don't know if you know this, but a lot of times, I'm, I'm sure you've experienced what I've experienced, you're, you're kind of in an argument with someone, and the first thing is they, before they can make the point of their argument, they have to charge you with something. They have to say, well, you've done such and such, and you're going, and then they're going to base uh, their argument on that, that statement of fact they just gave you, and you're going, wait a minute, that statement of fact you just made, that's not correct. We can't go forward in this argument uh, because you're already saying something to me that's false. That's part of the reason why we got a problem here. You believe a certain thing about me, and it's not true to begin with, and that's the reason why you're doing what you're doing, and, and then the next thing you know you're trying to counter that and then that's how an argument gets going instead of fixing something you know I, I've, I've been in um, uh, some family battles before in fact I, I will be honest with you I got a protracted problem with with my sister at the moment and I cannot get her to just come and let's just talk about the problem and make your request and let's agree to fix the problem and solve the problem let's just let's just get to it no she has to lay out all these statements before we can ever have that conversation you're guilty of this you're guilty of this you're guilty of this guilty of this okay now let's talk and it's like I'm not guilty of that that's not what happened I, I didn't do that you know, I'm I'm willing to take responsibility for my behavior, but that's those statements you just made are not true. And how are we supposed to get to the truth and get to a real solution if you're charging me as guilty of a whole bunch of stuff I didn't do? What you want me to repent of that stuff? You know, I'm yes, I'm guilty of certain things. I will repent of those things. Why don't you come and ask me what I think? is the problem I'll tell you what I think is the problem and if I have responsibility I'll apologize to you no no I gotta give all these other things and and it, it breaks down the communication and as a result I've, I've had to say to her you know I'm sorry but we're obviously not gonna have this conversation because you're starting everything with a fallacy how are we supposed to solve this and fix this if we're not gonna speak the truth and if we're just going to lie at each other, that's not going to be a solution. You understand my point about that? And so, so let's step back. Here's Jeremiah. And the first thing he says concerning God, I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. Wait a minute, wait, wait a minute Jeremiah. The Lord did do that. He did speak of those things. So what is he really saying here well let me just go ahead and tell you right now that unlike my other family conflicts and other conflicts I've had with other brethren Jeremiah is not speaking inappropriately here there is a particular point that he's making and I want to elaborate on that 
what God told Moses was, he said, I want you to bring the people out of Egypt to this mountain to worship me. Now, later on, after we come to worship and make a covenant and build a relationship, I then gave instruction about how to worship me by way of sacrifices and an altar. I gave them, but that wasn't the first thing, and that wasn't the objective. The objective was, I want you to have a relationship with me, be in covenant with me. I want you to hear my voice and believe what I say, and on the basis that, then I will give you some instructions. And furthermore, when it comes to this Torah portion where we're getting the instructions, Guess what he's really... This is the book of Leviticus. This is instructions to the priests. These are not the instructions to all of Israel. This is the instruction from God to the priest. And then you will go and you will lead the service for the people. In other words, it's not I went to all the people and said, okay, this is how we're all going to run the temple thing. No, I gave the instructions to the priests, gave them the authority to go do it, and then they established it with you. That was the proper way to do this. I didn't speak to you directly. I set it up so there would be a structure of priests and order to the tabernacle, and this is how you would come and worship me when you come to this place, this tabernacle. And remember, the tabernacle wasn't set up until a year after they left Egypt. They had to come to the mountain first, build a relationship first, hear his voice first, get a relationship with God, and then it follows, there's the instructions about burnt offerings and sacrifices and how to worship the Lord. If you get those two in front of the other, if you think that your relationship with God is all about the temple service instead of about the covenant that God made, uh, you're going to foul this whole thing up. It's the same thing that the Messiah, it's the same principle. The Messiah said, a religious man says that the gift is more important than, or the sacrifice is more important than the altar. And he says, people get that fouled up. It's the altar that sanctifies the sacrifice. You know, the, the lamb that comes in, it can't be a sacrifice to the Lord until you have first have established the altar, the altar system, the priesthood, and then you can bring a lamb in, and then you can call it a whole burnt offering. But you have to have all that other stuff there first, because that's what establishes it so that you can worship the Lord. So when did the tabernacle and the whole altar thing, when did that all come? That came after God had made a relationship with the people. There is a sequence to what God... And what religious men will do is they'll get those backwards. And they'll overemphasize something over a, a, a much more important thing. Have you ever heard the expression, you know, these people are majoring on the minors? By the way, in the Messianic movement, boy, do we do that. Boy, do we, we come into Torah, we start learning the commandments of the Lord, and we pick some, it's an important thing, it's part of the instruction, we pick this one thing out, we get just a little bit of knowledge about it, and all of a sudden, it's more important than the whole story of redemption. 
All of a sudden, um, the calendar, the calendar is so important that it's above all of the other teachings of the Torah. Oh, the proper pronunciation of God's name. Oh, oh my goodness. That's more important. You can't even get saved, according to some of them, unless you pronounce the name correctly. You've got to be kidding me. They've elevated that to the rank of salvation. You know, the, one of the things that we are taught uh, to be wise and discerning in the Lord is to rightly divide the word. To understand the priority of the commandments. To do the important things first. I mean, it's just basic wisdom of life. Uh, you know, a man who labors for his needs first instead of his wants first will be a successful man. But I guarantee you failure if a man labors for his wants but doesn't work for his needs. His life will be a disaster. I mean, he's working hard. You know, good things are happening, but they're not in the right sequence. There's no wisdom here. The same thing is true of our faith. There are certain things that are very, very important in sequence that we learn. And that's the reason why we have teachers. That's the reason why we have the teaching of the Torah is to instruct us rightly and correctly so that we all mature. We all are perfected in the faith. You know, any craftsman who, um, who learns his skill, you know, the master will teach the apprentice, well, you know, it's not just doing it, it's doing it correctly. It's about using the tool correctly. It's about doing the work correctly. And you learn the finer points and the priorities of, of how you put the things together, what you pay attention to, and, and how you do it. Well, God starts out, and the first thing that's important to all of us as we come into our relationship with the Lord is let's get this relationship that I'm going to be God to you, and you're going to be a believer in me. And by the way, I am your God, and I am your Savior. Let's get that straight first before I teach you the finer points of the afternoon prayers. Or, you know, how to serve in an excellent manner and support the Feast of Tabernacles. Those are important things too. But there's a sequence here. There's a priority. If you take the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, what was the sequence of events that they went through? What did God expose them to? First thing was Passover. Redemption. I'm going to save you. I'm going to pull you out of that mess you're in. Okay? And I'm doing it. They get out of Egypt. Okay? And all of a sudden they're introduced to Sabbath. They're introduced to eating something differently. Manna. These things were all introduced before they even get to the mountain. Now they get to the mountain, now God says, hey, what we really need to do here is build a relationship. And by the way, after we get this relationship going, I have a whole bunch of instructions for you. I need to teach you a whole bunch of things. All right. Now, with that said, and I've just kind of given you what the whole teaching is, let me read and continue to read what Jeremiah is saying here. And because it's talking about the teaching and instruction we've had about sacrifice, what is its proper place? 
You know, everybody looks at sacrifice and says, what that's got to do with our faith? Well, let's talk about that and, and see how Jeremiah addresses this. Is because Israel has consistently fouled this up. And oh, by the way, believers, we have consistently fouled this up. So let's talk about it. So he goes through and he says, let me repeat the words to you again. Verse 22, for I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people and you will walk in all the way which I command you that it may be well with you. The Torah portion, what's the title of the Torah portion? Sob. What's the word? Command. See, follow my voice, at which I command you that it may be well with you. Before we can learn this door portion, command, guys, we got to get this straight that the first thing that God wants us to understand is we have a relationship with Him. We call Him our God. Uh, he and and he, he we hear his voice we hear his instructions our heart is already inclined to hear what he says and to do what he says because we've already committed to that even before we know what he said so when he says i, com- I command you concerning these things our heart's already in the right position and we're ready to obey if your heart is not ready for a subject, somebody can come along and tell you the perfect truth of it, and you'll reject it out of hand because your heart's not ready to do it. Um, and by the way, there's all kinds of life lessons on that one. Um, your heart has to be ready to obey before you truly can hear his command, hear his instruction, begin to apply his instruction. You have to have a heart to obey first. And this is one of the great problems that Israel has. This is one of the great problems we spiritually have. We don't have a heart ready to go to serve the Lord. We hear the instruction and then we go, okay, well, I'll take that under advisement. At the moment, I'm, I'm not inclined to do that. That would be a little bit more than I think I want to do with this. And by the way, there's a lot of Messianic brethren coming into the movement, and that's exactly what they're thinking. Oh, you know, I... Uh, I, I think I can squeak by on the Sabbath thing. I'll make a few adjustments in my schedule. Uh, I just was recently visiting some brethren, new Messianic brethren, and this is the first year, the first cycle, they're going to uh, keep um, a Passover. Praise the Lord. I'm excited for them. Except I'm having to explain to them. Now, I'm glad to hear you want to keep the Passover. But are you aware that the day after the Passover is the Feast of Unleavened, and God also wants you to eat unleavened bread for seven days? Did you hear about that part? And oh, by the way, he also says on the first day after the first Sabbath after the Passover, he would like you to observe the Feast of First Fruits and start counting seven complete Sabbaths so that you can then keep the Feast of Weeks, which is 50 days later. And are you aware of that one? You see, when you start with the Passover, it doesn't stop with the Passover. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other stuff. You know what? There's some people over going, well... I think I'll go ahead and try this Passover thing. We'll see how that works out. For the other stuff, I'm not committed to that at all. Are you going to be successful? Are you going to get out of the Passover what you're really supposed to get out of the Passover? You're going to be like Israel. 
Well, I've heard what the instructions of the Lord are. I'm even participating in some of the stuff. But, you know, all this stuff that Moses is teaching, all this stuff we got at the Torah, you know, I'm just really, I don't really see it that way. And, um, you know, I'll, well, I'll take it under advisement. Does that sound like a heart that obeys? So the Lord is saying, I'm giving you this instruction about these sacrifices. Uh, how, how many how many are you really listening to my instructions? Well, I, I know you were in the class. I heard, I, I know you were sat there and you heard this stuff. But how many of you have a heart to do this? This is what the prophet is coming to Israel to say. Now, listen to what he has further to say. Verse 24. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels in the stubbornness of their evil heart, and they went backward and not forward. You know, in a, pardon me, in an almost a strange way, it actually would have been better for some of these people if they had gone ahead and <clears throat> lived old age in Egypt and died there. Because their heart wasn't really with it and, and all that business of leaving Egypt and all the inconvenience and so forth, it was just a pain. And it really didn't turn out to be all that good for them. And by the way, that generation that came out of Egypt, only two of them made it. And it didn't even include Moses and Aaron. That's what Jeremiah is talking about. They participated in the Passover. They crossed the Red Sea. They came to the mountain. They heard the voice. We built the tabernacle. We set up the priesthood. And it just didn't quite work for them. And the reason is because they really weren't really listening. And they were really going somewhere else. And they were stubborn in their heart. And uh, they really didn't want to follow the Lord. Well, obviously, the lesson here, folks, don't make that mistake. Don't, don't do that. And part of the thing that trips us up is that in our religiosity, we major on the minors and we miss the whole point. And while we appear to be religious and we appear to be we're observant and we're obeying and we fooled ourselves and deceived ourselves and we don't have a relationship with the Lord. Not a real relationship with the Lord. We're just walking around kind of doing the same things and agreeing to do the same things. And we all look like the same. But inside the hearts, God who sees inside, he sees a lot of hollow people. There's nothing in there. And oh, by the way, uh, just have a few circumstances change. Just, just change their environment ever so slightly. And they'll drop away from what they've been doing just like that. The only thing... The only thing kind of keeping them going is they just happen to have the right structure of friends and every, everybody's kind of agreed we're going to do this. You know, I'm wondering um, how many Messianic believers would actually keep Passover if all they had was the community was them. If there weren't any other brethren, would they, you know, they participate in Passover, would they still do Passover? If it was only them in the city and the community, would they still keep Sabbath or the other appointed times? 
it was just them and there still was a temple and there still were priests, would they bring offerings to the Lord? If it was just them, would, would they do it? And the, I think that's where Jeremiah is coming from. He's saying that, hey, the, the substance of our faith goes back to you being able to hear God's voice regardless of who else is around, and that you have a heart to obey what God said. That's the point. Let me read a little bit further. Verse 25, Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants and prophets daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but, stiff -necked, uh, but stiff stiffened their neck, and they did evil more than their fathers. Now this is Jeremiah in his day saying, you, you see all the mistakes our ancestors made and they didn't make it to the promised land? You guys actually did make the promised land. You're worse than them. In my day, Jeremiah the prophet, you people are worse than your fathers were toward the Lord. You've ignored and not listened to the Lord even more than they did. And by the way, there was a whole bunch of them that didn't listen to the Lord. They didn't even make it to the promised land. In chapter 16 of Jeremiah, let me just go ahead and tell you, Jeremiah speaks to the last generation. You know what he says to the last generation? It's the same kind of statement. He says that in the last generation that the people will rise up of Israel all around the world and then will say, what is this calamity called the end of the age, this great tribulation, all these prophecies about the day of the Lord, why is this calamity going to be coming on us and the world? And Jeremiah is instructed to give this answer to the last generation. And it says, it is because your fathers before you have not obeyed the Lord and they have been kicked out of the land and scattered into the nations. And here you are now, you're scattered in the nations because of their misdeeds and their lack of faith in me and not listening to my voice and not following my commandments. And here you are today. And the reason why this calamity is going to come is because, by the way, you are worse than your fathers. Now, if this is what God did with your fathers and their misbehavior, what do you think God's going to do with you and your misbehavior when yours is worse than theirs? That's the answer to why this calamity is going to be coming. And this judgment's going to become. Because we're worthy of judgment. And it's like he's putting us to the test and he's squeezing us and he's saying, Relent. Let it down. Turn away from your own stubbornness. Turn away from you being God of you and accept me as God and you become my servant. Accept the life that I'm giving to you and stop trying to run your own life and, and accept the life I'm giving you. If you don't accept the life I'm giving you, you'll die. A pretty profound message. Life and death stuff. But you know how we are. Well, even if I'm going to die, at least I'll be in charge. No, you aren't. After you die, you're going to find out God's still God of eternity. You're not in charge of anything. You know, the old trick of the devil. I've actually heard godless men say this. I am serious. I have heard with my own ears. 
Well, when I get to hell, you know, I'm going to be in charge of a whole lot of people. You're not going to be in charge of anybody. You're going to be serving the Messiah and his angels. He's God. You're not God. You've been deceived. The devil sold you a lie, and he said, join forces with me, and I'll make you in charge a part of hell. The devil isn't even in charge of hell. God is. And he's going to serve right along with everybody else. Now, the truth of the matter is, the real choice we have in life is you can choose to serve God or you can choose to serve God in hell. We're all going to serve because there is only one God. Now, the key is, did you hear the voice of God? Did you let your heart now follow God, which is what guides your soul and your spirit? Did you relent and you humble up and did you accept the Lord? Or did you do something else? By the way, the mistake of religious men is they don't turn their heart over the Lord, but they become religious. And that's not going to solve the problem either. That's just a cloak and dagger way of still being, get to be God and still get to be in charge of your life. And the what some religious men have done is they've taken the instructions of the Lord, the worship of the Lord, and they've made themselves kind of in charge of it. But they never gave their heart to the Lord. They never really listened to his voice. They never, they never got the relationship. They never entered into covenant with him. They've just taken his instructions and kind of adapted them. And by the, you, you look at the, stu the study of religion over the world, it is just an incredible uh, thing of religious men picking and choosing, cherry-picking this and that, and so forth, and making their own religion and making themselves God. Um, they are not going to be making into the kingdom because there's only one God in the kingdom, and it's not them. Now, if they really were God and they were setting up their own kingdom, okay, fine, I understand that. But it turns out there's only one God and there's only one kingdom, and this whole thing they got going on here is false. And it's not going to work. So here's Jeremiah talking in his day to the religious leaders of his day, to the leadership of Israel in his day. And he's saying this incredible thing. He said, you're, you're making more mistakes than your ancestors when they came out of Egypt. He goes further. Um, verse 27, And you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. You shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away and take up lamentation on the bare heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house which they call by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topeth, uh, which is the valley of the son, the son of Hinnom. 
Hinnom to burn their sons and their daughters in fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of the slaughter, for they will uh, bury, bury in the Topheth because there is no other place. By the way, let me just tell you, there's another prophecy that specifically says that when we come to the Messianic kingdom, it will be a wonderful place, by the way. Messianic kingdom. But there will be a place called Topeth. And there will be smoke rising from it. And that will be the opening to the pit where those that have been judged of the Lord, that's the smoke of the pit of hell. The opening to hell is going to be at the valley of Topeth. That's what the prophecy basically says. And when we're in the kingdom and we walk by, we're going to walk by, we're, we're going to see that place. And they say, oh, that's the place. That's the opening to the pit. And down inside that pit is the burning. That's the torment. That's the judgment on those who would not listen to the Lord. We'll be in the kingdom and, and we'll know exactly where that place is. And here's Jeremiah referencing it, and it's referenced later. So he's talking about, look, where's this all leading? All this business of not listening and obeying the Lord. Well, for those who don't really listen and so forth, it, it's not a journey to the promised land. It's a journey to another valley. That's where it ends up, in the pit. That's where this goes. You know, obviously the reason why he's saying it is he wants to provoke us to not do this. You know, receive the instruction correctly. Make sure that the, you do these as a result of your relationship. One of the simplest things I share with lots of people is don't tell me which God you believe in, show me which commandments you keep, I will tell you which God you believe in. Your testimony of who you believe in is based on which commandments do you keep. If you keep the commandments of men, you are following and believing in men. If you're following the commandments and the traditions and customs of idols, then you believe in those idols. But if you believe in God, you are following the commandments and the customs of Him. And when I see you keeping the commandments of the Lord, I don't care what you say to me. By the way, usually what you say is you believe the Lord, and by the way, I, I believe you. But if you come and you say, well, I believe in the Lord, but you're doing these other things. You know what? There's a little disconnect there, and I do not see that you're keeping his commandments. Now, the Apostle John in 1 John 2 said, If you say you know him, and yet you do not keep his commandments, you are a liar, and the truth is not in you. That's how John said what I just said. You know, the Apostle John, the beloved Apostle, the one that really loved the Lord, the Lord really loved him. You know, the, all of that grace, all that goodness. That's what he said about this. And did you know 
that the whole time I was in the Christian faith, I never had anybody read that verse to me from John. I never, I never once heard a preacher ever get up and say, By the way, if you don't keep the commandments of the Lord, that's the evidence that you don't know Him. I heard lots of men say, Know the Lord. But then they turned around and said, Well, we don't have to do those commandments. Know the Lord, but we don't have to do those commandments. Do you see the disconnect? That's the behavior of religious men. Oh, they're real good at the sacrifices, but they forgot all that religious stuff. They forgot all about we're supposed to know God. They forgot all about we're supposed to hear his voice and do what he says. Because they don't have a heart to do They're just doing that which is convenient and what everybody's doing. And that's what we do. And then, and then the next thing you know, why that's not what we do anymore. Because <laughs> it turns out we really didn't believe the Lord. Now, I don't want to leave you on a negative note. You know, whenever we teach the, the prophets, we always want to leave you on a very positive note, something good. And there's another segment of this Haftoah portion. It's actually in uh, chapter 9. And um, I want to take you to it. It's the last three, last couple of verses of chapter 9. This is part of the Haftoah portion. So let me take you to chapter 9, verse 23. And so here is the conclusion of this uh, Hoftor teaching. He says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, lest a rich man boast, lest, uh, let not a rich man boast of his riches. Let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, that I delight in these things, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair on their temples for all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. There's Jeremiah saying physical circumcision is not what counts. It's circumcision of the heart. By the way, that's what Yeshua came teaching. That's what Paul teaches in Colossians 2. That those that are circumcised without hands, the circumcision of the heart. That's the real sign of the covenant. Your heart. By the way, God judges us on our heart, not on the outward things. That's the important stuff. That's the most important part about our walk. Now, as I shared with you earlier, we're coming to the Passover season. We are specifically instructed in observing the Passover that in our hearts we are to believe that the Lord is passing over us that night just as he did in Egypt with our fathers. We are, in fact, are commanded to teach our sons that it is I who was passed over in Egypt that it was the Lord who passed over me. And we teach our son so that when he's grown, he can teach his son and say the Lord passed over him too. So those are not physical things that took place there. These are spiritual things. These are things of the heart. This is what God was looking for, is a relationship with his people, to know him and you to know him. 
In this last uh, weekend when I had a chance to be uh, with these people, the new, new people coming in the Messianic movement, I took them back to some basic instruction about Abraham. What is the difference between Noah and Abraham? What, what's the illustration that God gives us? It says, well, that Noah walked with God, but it says of Abraham, he walked before God. So what's the difference? Well, the first of Noah is like Noah was a small child. And the Lord, his heavenly father, took him by the hand. And when you have a toddler, you take them by the hand before you go walking and especially crossing a street. You physically control him so he doesn't get ahead, doesn't get behind. He stays right there with you where it's safe. You make all the decisions about safety and you protect him. And he's walking along thinking he's a big boy. But the truth of the matter is, he's in the hand of his father and his father has his hand on him. But Abraham is the picture of a son who has matured. He no longer needs to be pulled along by the Lord. He no longer needs to be drugged or corrected in that, that physical way. He can stand before his father and his father can simply give him instructions. In fact, when a son walks before the father, the son never sees the father. His eyes are going forward. The father is behind him. But he does hear his voice. And he has a heart that as soon as he hears his voice, he does what the voice says. Turn to the right. Turn to the left. Stop here. Go forward. And the son who walks before his son, there's no question about does he listen to the voice and does he do what the voice says. He's not walking with his father if he doesn't do what the father says. Now, God has called us to a relationship like Abraham, and he said, walk before me. The example of Abraham, we're the descendants of Abraham. Walk before me. Listen to my voice. I'm not going to grab you by the hand and drag you. I'm not going to push you. I'm not going to restrict you. I want you to learn to listen to my voice. But you all know, before that ever works, he's got to be able to recognize the voice, and he already has to have a heart that's going to do what the voice says. Because if he doesn't have a heart to do that, he's going to go off some way that the Father didn't say to go, and he's going to be doing his own thing, and we all know what happens then. That's, uh, in a nutshell, what Jeremiah is trying to get Israel to do. And as we start the Passover season, as we come where our hearts are supposed to be right before the Lord and we renew again uh, the Amoadim and the whole thing, I would invite you to come to the Passover table this year. Come with your heart. Just like the instruction of bringing your sacrifice, put your heart up on the altar. Let that be a substitute, an example for you. You know, come and worship the Lord with your heart, listening to his voice, obeying his voice. Don't be doing other stuff of your choosing, being stubborn and stiff-necked. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Sabbath. Thank you for the instruction from Leviticus. And Lord, thank you for the prophet Jeremiah and his word of wisdom that he's given to us. And I ask, Lord, as we enter into the Passover season now, as we enter into the time of your holy days, Lord, that you would awaken again within us a heart and a people for you. 
that we would be able to hear your voice, that we would have a heart inclined to obey you, and that you would make us wise into your ways and let us follow in the footsteps of our father Abraham and walk uprightly and walk before you as you would have us to do. In Yeshua's name we pray this. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom. Who can stop the Lord?